This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language, mature themes, female-female sex, male-female sex, group sex, futanari, women with penises, and erotic transformations. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 258. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I share a piece of my fiction with you and tell you what's new with my life and my writing. So let's get started with this week's story. This week, I'm bringing you Chapter 32 of Homecoming, my Metamore City erotic fantasy. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 228 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, John and Kate went to the homecoming dance with Chase, Emily, and Janet. The event turned into a sort of coming-out party for Chase, who decided to dispense with Kate's illusion and go openly in his incubus form. Chase did face some opposition to his being there, mostly from conservative parents who worried about his influence on their teenage children. On the whole, though, most of his classmates were just glad to know he was going to be okay, after the mysterious illness that had nearly taken his life. With Chase out of immediate danger, John has the space to think about the bigger picture. There are lots of other young incubi and succubi out there, some of them his own children. Chase was lucky enough to have Kate and John around to help him when he transformed, not to mention a supportive network of friends and family. Others haven't been so fortunate, John included. And then there are the human teenagers like Janet, trapped in sex-negative or abusive situations. Through religion and culture, the adults around them have fed them a steady diet of misinformation, fear, and shame. It's a problem that needs to be addressed. On top of all that, John needs to think about his future with the Hedonist Temple. Before he left on his trip, Mistress Jasmine noted that he seemed restless and bored, less interested in his work than in his hobby, what Jasmine calls his relationship with Kate. When she learned that he was going on vacation to meet Kate's parents, she unexpectedly gave him her blessing, because she expected it to blow up spectacularly, and for him to come crawling back to the temple, heartbroken, and ready for Jasmine to reshape him to her purposes. Now that this disaster has failed to materialize, John will need another way to reassure Jasmine of his loyalty. Homecoming, A Tale of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 32 Saturday, November 25th 
The Tom Lee's study group was roughly what John had expected. A group of middle-aged, middle-class men and women from Bridger Heights and a few of the surrounding towns. On average, they had married young, had a couple of kids, worked their way to modest success in their respective fields, and generally had lived their lives in the ways that were expected of them. Few of them had ever been more than a hundred kilometers from home. What united them was a deep curiosity and openness to new experiences, which set them apart from most of their neighbors. John found them to be warm, welcoming, and eager to learn more about hedonism and the word of Suspira. After the service, when the group sex and bondage play had trailed off into cuddling and idle conversation, John made himself useful in the kitchen. As he scrubbed off plates and loaded them into the dishwasher, he reflected on the strange series of events that had brought him here. He thought about Chase and Emily and Janet and all of the challenges that still lay ahead for them. He thought about his own children, most of them faceless and nameless in his mind's eye, and wondered how many of them would be lucky enough to have families and friends as supportive as Chase's had been. Come to think of it, John suspected that Chase's family had supported him in ways he hadn't even realized. His ruminations were interrupted by Margaret Tomley, who came into the kitchen bearing a load of cups and glasses gathered from around the house. She set them next to the sink, then looked up at him with bright, serious eyes. "'Something's bothering you,' she said, her voice low and gentle. John matched her tone. "'I'm just thinking.' Chase told us about his illness last summer. That must have been very frightening. For all of you. Out of the corner of his eye, John watched Margaret's reaction. Her eyes flicked downward, and her mouth briefly compressed into a line. Yes, it was, she admitted. You knew why he was sick, didn't you? John continued. You knew what he was, so you knew that sooner or later he would have his metamorphosis. Only he didn't. Yes, Margaret said. She kept her eyes on her hands, her fingers nervously fiddling with each other. The priest said he would probably change when he was sixteen or so. We started teaching him about sex when he was twelve, just to be on the safe side. He was handsome and popular. But sixteen came and went, and then seventeen, and he still hadn't brought home a girlfriend. She chuffed a laugh. (laughs) Or a boyfriend. And we always let him know we'd be fine with either. She shook her head slightly. I didn't realize how much that damned youth group was brainwashing him. As a parent, you always think the lessons you teach are the most important ones. But the kids aren't just listening to you. Everyone around them gets their say, too. John dried off his hands and turned around to face her. He put a gentle hand on her shoulder. So, that weekend when you were out of town, when you left him with Emily, that was on purpose. You were counting on them having sex while you were gone. Margaret nodded, sniffed back tears. I didn't know what else to do, she admitted. I knew they loved each other, even if they'd never done anything about it. And he was too weak to find anyone else. Emily's a good person— I knew she would be kind and gentle with him. So we left them there, and we went to our hotel room, and we prayed for our son's life. 
She looked up at John, and he could see the conflicted feelings behind her eyes. Well, it worked. My son lived. But I guess it didn't work out quite how I planned, did it? She shook her head again. I wasn't counting on how powerful shame can be. John squeezed her shoulder. They seem to have gotten through it all right. Yes, Margaret said. Now. Thanks to you and the Catanes, mostly. She looked up at him, her eyes questioning. Should I have told him sooner? The priests always told us to keep his heritage a secret until he changed, that it would protect him from prejudice. But I wonder if I could have spared him all that suffering if he had just known the truth. John sighed. Honestly, I have no idea. My gut says yes, but I didn't know what I was before I changed, so it's not like I have any personal experience to draw on. With all the stuff Chase had heard in church, it's hard to say how he would have reacted. Anyway, I'm not exactly qualified to give anyone parenting advice. Margaret smiled ruefully up at him. I don't think anyone is. We're all just muddling through, and sometimes we do all right. She reached up and put a hand on his arm. And sometimes we get grace. John chuckled. That's a very interesting mix of theologies you have there, Mrs. Tomley. Margaret's nose crinkled with amusement. Thank you, dear. She opened her arms in a hug, and John accepted it. After they parted, John gripped her forearms and looked her in the eye. Can I ask a favor? Name it, Margaret said. The girl we rescued, Janet Vickers. She's been through a hard time lately. I know, Margaret said seriously. Lisa was telling me all about it. The poor girl. John nodded. I don't know if we're going to find her mother or not. Even if we do, I don't know if her mom's going to be in any position to look after her. She's going to need adult role models in her life to help her get her head on straight. She'll need help getting ready to go off to college. And honestly, with what she's been through, she's probably going to need therapy. Agreed. Margaret's eyes had gone distant and thoughtful. After a moment, she nodded. I'll talk to Sam and Lisa tomorrow. We'll start figuring out the details. I'll bet I know three or four other couples who'd be willing to help out, too. Don't worry, Brother John. We'll take care of her. John felt a little more weight lifting off his shoulders. For all the eccentricities of small-town, provincial culture, people out here really did know how to come together and help each other out. I know you will, he said. Thank you, Margaret. Friday, January 26th, 2001, Christos Reckoning John took a deep breath and knocked on the door of Mistress Jasmine's chambers. Come in, Jasmine called. John opened the door and stepped through into Jasmine's sitting room. The priestess was reclining on a chaise long in her native succubus form naked except for the holy symbol of Suspira around her neck. She had a tablet computer propped up in her lap and a crystal tumbler of whiskey in one hand. Soft, instrumental music played from speakers hidden discreetly around the room. John approached to about two meters, then stopped and bowed low. You sent for me, mistress? I did. 
Jasmine raised her glass and gestured to the couch across from her. John sat and waited. After perhaps half a minute, Jasmine tapped out a few unseen commands and set the tablet aside. She turned her amber eyes on John, arched her brows slightly. The tip of her tail flicked slowly up and down, like a cat's. How is the regional conference? she asked. John spread his hands. I think my presentation went well. I got a lot of positive feedback from the other priests. They have to go back and discuss the initiative with their temples, but I think there's a good chance it'll pass. Jasmine nodded in apparent satisfaction. Nicely done. She gestured to the end table on the far side of the couch, where a decanter of whiskey sat next to another glass. John poured himself a little, clinked the glass against Jasmine's, and drank with her. You realize this isn't a sure thing, she cautioned. Some of the provincial governments are awfully conservative. They don't much like the idea of anyone doing sex-positive education programs, much less people like us. They'll probably fight to keep you out of the places where you're most needed. I'm aware, John admitted, but I think we still have to try. Being a teenager is hard enough as it is. If we can teach them to think better about things like consent and STI prevention, and just not being ashamed of their own bodies, I think that'll help a lot of people. And as a bonus, maybe it will help people stop being so afraid of us. Jasmine smirked and held up a forestalling hand. I'm already on board, John. I don't need the sales pitch. John ducked his head ruefully. Of course, mistress. Jasmine leaned her head back against the chaise, and her smile softened into something kinder. It's good to see you passionate about your work again. I guess that vacation really did help you recharge. I like to think so, John agreed. Jasmine took a long drink, emptying her tumbler, and set it aside. Slowly, almost lazily, she picked up the tablet again. I also got a very interesting letter from someone in Bridger Heights, Alamar Province. Sound familiar? John immediately felt uneasy. Did someone tell her about Chase? The Tomleys had decided to work with the temple in Alarial, Alamar's provincial capital, rather than sending Chase to Metamore for training. Would Jasmine be angry at John for losing a promising new recruit? He cleared his throat and swallowed. Really? What's it say? Jasmine's eyes scanned back and forth across the screen of the tablet. It's a testimonial from a married couple. It says here that they've been married for almost 25 years, they still love each other, but the wife was feeling restless and unsatisfied, blah blah blah. But two months ago they joined a hedonist home group in their town. Now their sex life is reinvigorated, they're communicating openly about their needs, and they found some wonderful new partners to share their lives with. John's uneasiness gave way to a sudden wash of relief. That's wonderful. I'm very happy for them. I should hope so, Jasmine said dryly. It's signed Sam and Lisa Catane. She arched her eyebrows. And they wanted to thank you personally for inspiring them to try this. Slowly, John sank back into his seat. I... well, that's very flattering. Jasmine laughed, a low, rich sound, and shook her head in apparent amazement. 
You dog, she said, and made it sound like a compliment. I send you to meet your girlfriend's parents, thinking they'll push her into dumping you. And what do you do? You fucking convert them. John felt a flush creeping into his face. Well, they didn't convert, exactly. No, no, you have got to tell me, Jasmine said, laughing so hard that her voice shook. Did you fuck the mom and the daughter together? Did the dad join in too, or did he just watch? How fucking perverted is this family? I am dying to know. John opened his mouth to protest, to tell her that none of that had happened. But, as he took in the look of baffled delight in her eyes, he thought better of it. For the first time in months, Mistress Jasmine wasn't doubting his commitment to the church. He had her trust, he had her mentorship, and most importantly, he was spearheading a critical new initiative in the church, one that could help him find more kids like Chase, before their stories turned tragic. Maybe he could let Jasmine have her illusions. Slowly, John let a wicked smile spread across his face. Well, a gentleman doesn't kiss and tell, as you know. Jasmine, of course, scoffed derisively at this. But, he said, let's just say I am invited to all the family holidays from now on, if you take my meaning. He waggled his eyebrows suggestively at this, and Jasmine laughed even harder. He leaned forward and dropped his voice to a growling sotto voce. And hey, you want to hear something wild? Let me tell you what happened when I gave my girlfriend a cock. Jasmine's eyes went wide, sparkling with delight. Oh, goddess, please. John grinned. So, it all started when we got to her parents' house. It was after 11 p.m. when John made it back to Serenity Arms. He carried his suitcases up to the apartment, unlocked the door with the key Kate had given him at Ewell, and made his way inside. He was greeted by a living room that was mostly clean, but not entirely spotless. A few piles of laundry sat folded in a basket on the coffee table, waiting to be put away. A coffee cup sat next to the television remote, and a few pairs of shoes and boots sat in a disorganized pile near the door. From the bedroom came the sound of music, something soft and romantic that was mostly piano and saxophone. John smiled to himself, hung his coat in the coat closet, left his bags by the door, and followed the music to the back of the apartment. The bedroom was lit once more by candles set out on the dresser. Morgan Drowling lay on her back on Kate's enormous canopy bed, her flawless alabaster skin bare and gleaming in the dim light. Her long, straight black hair spread out around her like a dark halo. Her eyes were closed, her wine-red lips open. Her breath came quickly and with quiet moans as her long, muscular legs wrapped tightly around Kate's head. Her elegant hands ran long fingers through Kate's auburn curls, caressing her scalp as she sucked and nibbled at Morgan's pussy. John immediately felt himself growing hard, as two of the women he loved most in the world enjoyed themselves in front of him. He quickly and quietly undressed, tossing his clothes in the hamper next to the door. 
By the time he was naked, Morgan was writhing in the throes of orgasm. He climbed onto the bed beside her, and when her dark eyes fluttered open, he leaned over and kissed her. Hmm, she said, the sound almost a growl of pleasure. As they parted, she reached up and caressed his cheek with one hand. Why, hello, darling. I was wondering when you'd get here. Sorry, John said. I had to report into Jasmine about the conference. From between Morgan's legs, Kate lifted her head and grinned at them both. John's a big shot now, she said teasingly. Nothing but work, work, work all the time. She climbed up the length of Morgan's body on her hands and knees, then put a hand behind John's head and pulled him in for a kiss. Her tongue danced with his, and John could taste the traces of Morgan's sex. His cock throbbed with sudden, ardent need. Kate broke the kiss, then pressed her forehead against his as she looked him in the eyes. "'Good to see you, love,' she said. And with those simple words came a profound feeling of warmth, contentment, and peace. "'You too,' he whispered. Kate's hand wrapped around the shaft of his cock, and now her pale green eyes gleamed with impish amusement. "'Now then, we've had to make do without this for the last week.' Eating each other out is great and all, but there's something special about a nice hard cock. Wouldn't you agree, Morgan? Oh, yes, Morgan purred. John felt his own devilish grin spreading across his lips. Oh, yeah? he asked, matching Kate's playful tone. I suppose you want me to give it to you, then? Fuck yes, Kate growled. I'll take all you can give me. He kissed her again harder this time. As you wish, milady. Then he opened his aura and poured his essence into her. Kate sat back on her haunches, spread her arms, and threw back her head as the power flowed into her. Quickly her skin flushed red, her hair turned black, her breasts swelled, and horns, tail, and penis sprouted into being. Then she cut off the flow of essence as quickly as it began, leaving John with only a momentary feeling of dizziness. She opened her eyes, and the amber irises glowed like flames in the darkness. Morgan reached up and gripped Kate's new phallus, stroking it lovingly up and down. That is a gorgeous look on you, darling. Kate leaned over and kissed her, her newly heavy breasts pressed against Morgan's. Thanks, she purred. It's grown on me. Morgan barked a laugh. John buried his face in his hand. Again with the puns, he muttered. Morg, you are a terrible influence on her. Kate's tail wrapped around his wrist and pulled his hand down. You're one to talk. Look what you did to me. Still holding Kate's cock in her hand, Morgan arched her hips and guided Kate inside her. Both women's eyes closed in pleasure as their bodies joined. John lifted the head of Kate's tail to his mouth and sucked, earning a gasp of delight. I see nothing terrible about any of this, he said. Damned right, Kate said, panting as she began thrusting harder. Now get back there and fuck me. John quickly moved to obey. He climbed up onto bed behind her, straddling Morgan's legs. 
He lifted Kate's tail and found her folds slick and ready for him. As he entered her, Kate gave a loud cry and thrust even deeper into Morgan, who let out a gasp of her own in turn. They moved together in slow, undulating waves, each stroke bringing a ripple of pleasure. Morgan reached up and squeezed Kate's breasts, then lifted her head to suck on the engorged nipples. Kate used her tail glands to lubricate John's ass, then gently pushed her way inside him, stimulating his prostate to delicious effect. John held tightly to Kate's horns as he thrust into her, burying himself to the hilt again and again. Orgasms exploded through their bodies like a fireworks display, each burst triggering the next. John's daedric core reached out to feed, but Kate's core pulled back just as hard, and both their brains lit up with ecstasy as the life energy passed between them. Some uncountable time later, they lay collapsed in happy exhaustion. Kate in the middle, John and Morgan cuddled up to her on either side. Lazily, Kate turned her head first one way, then the other, kissing each of them in turn. I am one very lucky girl, she announced. Morgan lay her head on Kate's chest, her expression one of deep contentment. I think we're all very lucky, she said. Then she chuckled to herself as she traced a hand over Kate's belly and down to her borrowed cock. Such a strange little family we've made for ourselves. Imagine what our parents would say. Weirdly, I think Kate's parents would be okay with it, John said dryly. It doesn't matter anyway, Kate said. Family is where you make it. She wrapped her arms around them both a little tighter, all her hesitation gone. All her worries about their future laid aside. Whatever changes and challenges the future brought, they would face them together. She turned and looked him in the eyes, then kissed him gently on the lips once more. Welcome home, John. John smiled, closed his eyes, and relaxed into her touch. Thanks, he said. It's good to be here. The End And that was our story. I hope you enjoyed it. Homecoming is being published as a completed audiobook at audible.com and should be available by the time you hear this. You can also buy the paperback version at Amazon and the ebook through a wide variety of online markets. Now it's time to check in on my writing endeavors. Here's your weekly writing report. This update covers the week of October 10th through October 16th. I wrote 4,472 words this week, over the course of 7 hours, for an average writing speed of 639 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 182 days without breaking my chain. This was another solid week for making progress in Honor Bound. I got at least some writing done every day this week, taking advantage of the big recording push that I did in September. You'll remember that when I returned to writing the novel at the end of last month, I jumped backward a little to fill in some gaps in the storyline. I've continued writing forward from that earlier point, because the new scenes that I wrote led to other scenes that needed to follow immediately in the narrative. To keep things simpler for myself, 
I cut out the last out-of-order scene and pasted it into a separate file. If it still fits when I catch up with that point in the timeline, I'll paste it back in. And if it doesn't, I'll at least have it available to cannibalize if necessary. This is an important lesson that I've learned about writing. Never throw anything out. Even if you can't figure out where a story is going, and you end up chucking it in a drawer for a few years, someday you may pull it out and see exactly what it needs in order to finish it. That happened to me with Fire in the Sky, Maternal Instinct, and The Nearness of You, and I have at least four other stories that are in similar states of incubation right now. When will I get back to them? I don't know, but they're saved and backed up for when I need them. Honor Bound is now in Chapter 26, and the manuscript is over 68,000 words. And now, the feedback. Leo writes, Hey Chris, thanks for the shout-out from your latest podcast. I was having a hard day, and it was a bit of a sparkle to feel less alone. It's appreciated. By the way, I've started using The Dark Lord Steve as my quote-unquote gateway story to foster more fans for you. My husband and my son are now both keen to take in more of your stories, since I shared that one with them. Oh, and the content in Part 2 regarding Daisy's body changes and her motivations for it was a bit much for my 11-year-old. LOL. He was fine, he just cringed a bit, and then the story moved on to other things. I don't know if a content warning can be added to the short story collection, where I got access without the podcast episodic interruptions, just in case there's another who didn't know slash remember that the story would take an unexpected dip into mature themes. I know it's hard to keep working during these terrifying times. For the amount you can and you share, thank you. Your stories have kept me company for a few years now, and I value the effort you have put into yourself and your craft to elevate your art and maintain curiosity. Take care, Leo. Thanks very much for the feedback, Leo. I'm so glad that your family enjoyed The Dark Lord Steve, and that the podcast is helping you to feel less alone. Thank you for the suggestion on content warnings. This is something I'd never given much thought to before Homecoming, when it became manifestly necessary, but I'm finding it to be valuable for flagging all sorts of things, not just sex. I want to give a shout-out to my friends at the Let's Be Legendary podcast for modeling this practice in a really positive way, and helping me to see the need for it. It probably isn't possible at this point to add a content warning to the audiobook, because Audible makes it a pain in the ass to make any changes once a book is submitted, but I can add content warnings to the print book pretty easily. There's a number of other stories in distant realms that could also benefit from content warnings, so I'll add that project to my to-do list for this coming year. Thanks for writing in! This is the last episode of The Raven and the Writing Desk for this year. For all the craziness that 2020 has brought us, it's been a good year for the podcast. I released 44 episodes, compared to 43 in 2019 and 40 in 2018. I released three new audiobooks this year, Distant Realms, Homecoming, and A Wizard Family Solstice. On the Patreon campaign, I ended the year with 130 patrons, compared to 128 last year, but the amount that those patrons gave went up significantly, so overall the podcast is on a firmer financial footing. And most exciting of all, this year marked the first time that I had a story released by a paying market, 
with maternal instinct appearing on the Drabble cast. It was a good year for me and Melanie as a couple, too. We bought our first house in February, just before the pandemic forced us to hunker down for most of the year. Mel's photography business brought in record income this year, and I continued to grow and advance professionally as a scientist. All of this is to say that as I look back on this year, I feel tremendously grateful. We never would have gotten this far if not for the people who helped us when we were at our worst. When I got laid off from my job in the middle of a Montana winter, or when my recording equipment broke and I couldn't afford a replacement, or when Mel needed a new camera just as her photography career was starting to take off. It was the generosity of others that got us through those hard times, and many of those generous people are longtime listeners of this show. Now, as we've been blessed with success in a time of such darkness, fear, and uncertainty, I'm very glad that I can pay some of that help forward to others in need. The holiday season is a time for reflection, for gratitude, and for generosity. As we come to the end of 2020, with the world still battling a disease like nothing we've seen in a hundred years, many of our neighbors find themselves in desperate need. I encourage you all to look around for the people you can help, the ways you can do the most good. To quote John Sheridan of Babylon 5, As much as our humanity got us into this mess, our humanity is the only thing that will get us out again. So happy holidays, and when the night is at its darkest, remember to keep it on the bright side. I'll see you next year. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2019 and 2020 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org. <laughs>